If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Luke chapter two. We begin um, our Advent series this year. Uh, We've got three weeks, like I said, because of Christmas Eve being on the 24th uh, to talk about Advent and the gospel story. I have to confess to you, um, I'm sort of pumped about Christmas, which is really weird if you know me because I... I in years past, I was kind of a bah humbug guy. Not, not classically bah humbug, just enough to, to not be, you know, smiling all the time. And uh, I was, it was probably because I grew up in the church and every time Christmas came around, it was just saturated. It was all the time, all the time. And so too predictable. Um, even I kind of ran from tradition a little bit, always looking for something new, but Something's happened in my 56 years of living because now the day after Thanksgiving, Christmas tree was up, Christmas lights were up, channel 99.9 on the radio. Something's happened, you know, good, good news, I guess. Even when it comes to this moment that we have together, I, I consider, well, how, how clever can we get at Advent? You know, like, can we just, can we throw a curveball? Can we say something no one's ever said about this season? And I don't even like that anymore. I, I think there, there's something wise in um, saying something very old, very familiar. In fact, I hope, and this is my hope, that for the next three weeks, you hear nothing new. But these old things just move you in deep, deep ways. Because this gospel story of a savior come for sinners never gets old. It never gets old, and so we can talk about it and talk about it. Every year we should anticipate. Guess what we get to talk about at Christmas? Jesus come for sinners. So that's our plan uh, in the three weeks we have together. We're gonna look at this gospel narrative through a couple of lenses in the narrative. We're we gonna look at grace through the story of Mary. We're, we're gonna look at the gospel coming to the humble through the story of Joseph. And today, we're gonna look through the eyes of the shepherds on God coming for the outsider. That's the, that's the game plan today. And so here in our text, we're gonna just read the story. Um, the first 14 verses tell the beginning of, of our Christmas story. So let's read it, verses one through 14. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first uh, registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In that same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray together as we get started. God, I do thank you for um, what you will say to us in this season. What you'll remind us of this wonderful story of good news come for, for sinners. 
Lord, even though these are very familiar truths and very familiar stories, don't let us be passive when it comes to them. God, move in our hearts at least a growing appreciation for how profound this truth is. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Okay, I've got a premise I want to start with. I think it's a profound truth that the very first group group of people that the announcement of the Savior was to come to was shepherds. I think it's an it's a unbelievable statement by God. To understand how profound I believe it is that they were told first, it is important for us to understand shepherd. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of shepherd, but let me straighten it as far as what the culture at that time thought of shepherds and how they were treated. In Israel, a shepherd's role was an outcast. Um, the bottom of the barrel of society. I tried to put a modern spin on it and I thought, well, we'll just talk about the poor, the homeless, and even, even we have more affection for the homeless and the hurting than those folks. I, I thought of, of criminals. So if you just think of a gangster, something like that, someone who just, they're terrible, they're sinners, is the, is the cultural thought about shepherds at that time. Now, I'll tell you why it got that way in a second, but just an honest confession from my vantage point, I would never get there with the role of shepherd. I mean, it sounds somewhat like a, a noble, good profession, like a good, hard job that you'd, you'd want. And it's not like I, I kind of formulate that mindset from even American perspective. You can't help but pick up the scriptures and find over and over again this, this role, this activity of being a shepherd and put in a positive light. We, we celebrate the writings of, of King David in the book of Psalms. David is described as a man after God's own heart. David was a shepherd. Some of the heroes, most of the heroes that you would mention in the scriptures served at one time or another as a shepherd. And maybe they were even shepherds of people. They were described that way. Jesus is described as the great shepherd. It's really hard for us to go, wow, look down at the, that role because of all the positive ways it's used and re reinforced in scripture. Nevertheless, in that culture, they were considered outcast. How did that happen? How did the shepherds come to be viewed as total outcast. I'll give you a phrase and I'll define it. Cultural influence. 400 years Israel was enslaved in Egypt. Egypt hated shepherds. Um, in that culture, Egyptians were crop farmers, not herdsmen. And they hated herdsmen because after all, you know what herds do to crops, right? They eat them and destroy them. So in their mind, it was us or them. It was they're bad and we're good because this is what we do. This is what we value. So beyond just the obvious, herds are bad for farmers, for, for grains farmers, um, all the people groups that were around Egypt were herdsmen. And Egyptians were proud of themselves. We're better than them. We're different than them. And so they held themselves in high regard and they looked down at the activity of, of shepherding or herding. So here you have now Israel planted in a culture and a climate for all those years, hundreds of years, slowly embracing and adopting the attitudes and prejudice that existed in Egypt. Now, there's a sermon for another day, but I at least have to make a point. I wonder what would be the attitudes and prejudice that we have adopted over 200 plus years of being Americans. Something's happening to us. You, you can't say, no, that's just their problem. Um, this would be a, a preacher point I think I'll make. I think it's important for us not to think for one second that our culture doesn't affect us, because it does. 
it subtly says things and reinforces things that have nothing to do with right or wrong or truth. Um, we end up loving things or hating things that God doesn't. So it's kind of the illustration of the frog and boiling, getting hotter water. You never know. You never know. You're just stuck in a culture and you become. You become like them. And the reality of it is, is that we become oblivious to the ways in which we're changing or the ways in which we're becoming. And so here you have Israel, clearly the example of God's um, affections towards those people and you're living in a culture that they can't stand and yet they're embracing parts of the culture that they can't stand. It's very, very interesting about human nature, isn't it? So just for a side note, I dare you to ask questions. How are you being shaped by your culture that isn't in any way in line with what God thinks? Important to come back to. Here in this story, however, Israel is in this position of slavery. Finally, God rescues them and gives them the land that they promised, that he promised he would give them. And they moved in. And they moved in everything, including their prejudice, including their opinions about shepherds. You understand? They took it all with them. For instance, the Mishnah, which is the written uh, oral law of God's people, uh, it describes shepherds as incompetent people. That's described for them. In fact, it says in one place that no one should ever feel obligated to rescue a shepherd who has fallen into a pit. In other words, they're not worth saving. That's how we feel about shepherds. In Jesus' day, the day that this wonderful news came, shepherds were considered sinners. That's how they were described, okay? One commentary I, I read suggested why it felt so intense for them. Shepherds, because of the activity of dealing with these animals in an unclean way, were constantly ceremonially unclean. And because they spent weeks and months out in the desert caring for their sheep, they could never come to the temple and clean themselves up. So they were in a perpetual state of sinful. Do you understand? So they were considered outside. But nevertheless, in, in a culture that despised them on a hill 2,000 years ago at night, God tells the greatest news the world has ever heard to a bunch of people that no one cared about, that never measured up question probably should have popped in your head right there. Pretty simple question. One word question. Why? 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 Because why? God could have done anything he wanted, right? He could, have, he could have taken anywhere. He could have, if I were thinking about, you know, social media, tell it to the kings. Tell it to the people who have Twitter. Tell it to the people who have influence and position. Tell the important people. And then the news about the Savior being born will get out there and have good positive reinforcement. But he doesn't tell the kings. He doesn't tell the noble. He doesn't tell the influential, the people with public platform. Why? Okay, beyond just the announcement. I think God was preaching a sermon in the announcement. And here it is, pretty simple. This good news of great joy that the angels proclaimed is only for the outcast and the outsiders and the rejected and the marginalized. It's only for those people, no one else. God wanted the shepherds and us to know in its basic truth, everybody who lives is an outsider when it comes to God. All of us are separated from God because of our sin and because of God's wonderful grace and mercy alone. He came to broken people outside. He came to people who have no hope without him. That's what he did. 
And he didn't just come and announce things. He came to get us close to him, so close that we'd be called the children of God. In fact, that's what the text tells us. See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us? That we should be called God's children? That's the wonderful conclusion. Outsiders who get Jesus, we become his, his kids. Profound truth is, is revealed in the who this announcement was given to. The good news that we talk about all the time, this good news that the angel said is of great joy that will be for all the people is not about God making offerings to nice people who already get it. This is about God offering life to dead people who don't get anything and don't even care that they don't get anything. That's the condition of the human heart. He comes to those people because there aren't any other kind. Do you believe that? So whether you're, if you're here today and whether or not you even know that you're dead in your sins towards God, even if you don't admit it, God is still expressing his loving, compassionate heart to invite you close. His invitation is on all the time. It's on just by your presence here this morning. He's telling you about himself. Constant invitation. In fact, I think the second greatest theme in all of scripture, aside from God being good and great, is the fact that God comes for people who are marginalized. You have a redemptive story from Genesis to Revelation. God is coming for people who can't. If, if you haven't read anything, you pick up just a marginal glance of scripture, you see that over and over again. That guy doesn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve it. They don't deserve it. Why does he keep coming close? Why does he keep giving himself? Why does he keep loving? Why did he die? He came because we're all outsiders without hope without him. That's why. That's the scripture. This book contains story after story after story of his rescue of my paraphrase, boneheaded people, right? Some of you won't admit it. That should have been an amen right there. Let me give you a couple of examples, okay? Again, so familiar, but yet so true. Flip over to Mark chapter two. We did Mark, I don't know how long ago. It feels like forever ago already. But these stories will be familiar to you as a reminder of a type or a way in which God comes to the outsider, to the ostracized, to the rejected or despised. Mark chapter two has several little encounters that Jesus has early on in his ministry with people like this. I wanna reveal to you one of them uh, early on in verses 13 through 17. This is when Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector. Remember this story? Now, just to get you some caught up context here, early in Jesus' ministry, Mark's gospel is filled, like the other gospels, are filled with what Jesus did and who he went to and what he said. And you see him over and over again going to people with, who are casting out demons, people who have leprosy, people who are sick, and sinners, okay? That's the, that's the description of Jesus' activity early on. And then we get to Mark, Mark 2, verses 13 through 17, a particular story. It says this, and he went out again beside the sea and all the crowds coming to him and he was teaching them and, and as he passed by he saw Levi the son of Alphaeus sitting in the tax booth and he said to him follow me and he rose and he followed him and as he reclined at a table in his house many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him and the scribes and the Pharisees when they saw this that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors said to his disciples why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners and when Jesus heard it he said to them those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Just a brief kind of reminder of 
what profound things are happening in this dinner party. Matthew, we know him as Levi from the text. Matthew is called a tax gatherer. And again, this is in the context of Jesus already caring for so, so many outsiders from the demon possessed who were rejected to the to multitudes of six lepers who you never touch. He is touching to the paralyzed who were sitting by the wayside always begging for their sustenance. And Jesus went to them too. And now we have a tax gatherer, a collector, to understand how absurd this is and unusual this is, we've got to spend a little bit of time reminding ourselves of, of this, the life of a tax collector. Let me just say to you, whatever you heard me say about shepherds is exactly, and maybe more extreme, how people felt about tax collectors. Again, that to us sounds like maybe, well, he's working for the IRS. What a noble profession. Well, that's not at all what this was. In fact, in that day, the, the tax gatherer title was used interchangeably with the phrase robber. That's how they felt about him. These people are just extortionists. They steal for a living. That's their job. So the way it worked in, in, the, in the government at that time, the government called for a tax from the people. And the way they collected that tax was to hire independent contractors, publicans, to get the job done. Like they had to be responsible in their region to collect taxes that they expected, that Rome expected for, for, um, the, from the people. The publicans, on the other hand, would then hire subcontractors, five to 20 men, depending upon the size of the region, to then go and make certain that happens. Well, these guys didn't raise the money themselves either. They would hire average Joe citizens, tax gatherers, men who were familiar with the place and the people, men who, who were local men, who knew where people lived, knew how much people owned, knew how much land they had, where they hid their wealth, right? They, they knew what they did for a living. In other words, hired so much insiders that there's no way anyone could escape paying everything that they thought they, they owed, okay? And the other part of the burden of this or the role in tax collecting was that, that Rome demanded a certain amount per region, an expectation, and that you can make your living and you can take whatever you wanted above that. So now you have neighbors and community leaders and family and friends who are working now for the government and they know everything about you and they tax you for everything. They tax you for the produce that you make. They tax you for the income you get, no matter where it comes from. They tax you, there was a tax for just being alive. They tax you for everything. And then they would charge you a little bit more, maybe more than a little bit more. And they would live in the nicest neighborhood, nicest house, wear the nicest clothes, and you're paying for it. And it just boils your blood. And you hated them for this. That's the tax collector. They were greedy and extortionist. They were hated because of it. These men were so despised, they were excommunicated from attending the synagogue. They were pronounced unclean officially, meaning they couldn't be made clean. They were considered unfit to judge or be a witness in any kind of case because fundamentally to be a tax gatherer mean you couldn't trust them so they couldn't even speak in a case. Their money uh, made everything it touched unclean. So you couldn't, even, you couldn't even give charitable giving from a tax collector because nobody would want it. They were totally despised. Now that's Matthew. But now look at who Matthew hangs out with, verse 15. And he reclined at a table in his house. Jesus did. And many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Tax collectors and sinners, you know, I've said this to you before, the best way to understand it really in the language is the, the phrase notoriously evil. In other words, these people were known for their depravity. 
they were known, they had a title, they might have had, well, had t-shirts, outsiders, rejected, don't fit, hated, that's who we are, we're the outsiders. And, and, and by the way, these, these sinners, as, as they're entitled here, aren't just people who occasionally transgress God's law. These are not people who bump their head once in a while. These people were known for living in sin. They built houses there. They called evil good. That's what they did. These people were classically bad people. They were criminals and violent. They were prostitutes and tax collectors. And the Pharisees couldn't get their mind around Jesus, you prophet, you man of God, hanging out with such people. Nobody would do that. In the middle of this dinner party, Jesus makes a statement to explain not only why he eats with them, but the why announcement would come to shepherds on a hill. And it's pretty simple, verse 17. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Eugene Peterson, his paraphrase, put it this way. I've come for the sin sick, not the spiritually fit. <laughs> and, and by the way, just so you can mark it down, there is no such thing as spiritually fit apart from Christ. So Jesus didn't come for those. Let me give you another example of the absurdity of Jesus coming to the marginalized. It's in the, it's in the same book, chapter one, small last paragraph, in verse 40 through 42, just a reminder of how intense his pursuit of the marginalized is. Uh, we'll read a couple verses, verses 40 to 42. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, he stretched out his hand, and he touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Now there's so much more to be said about this story, but... Uh, I, you know, without much work, how distant a leper was in that culture. Leprosy was a death sentence. If you touched him, you were done. You were done, you weren't clean, you couldn't attend synagogue, you were outside the city too. So these, Jesus was moved by the situation of the rejected, of the broken, of the hurting and the lonely and the hated, he was moved by that. In fact, the text tells us he was filled with compassion, which means he felt it in his guts. This wasn't just some kind of spiritual duty that Jesus was doing. He was emoting his way through the rejectedness of people. He's feeling it with them. I'm hurt for this person. And he reaches out and does the absurd thing and touches this man and brings healing to him. Now, let me stop. We don't need to unpack these stories. Is not the illustration obvious? Over and over again, you see Jesus go to people like this, over and over again. So, so let me briefly give you how to conclude these thoughts and these illustrations. The illustration paints the picture that everyone's an outsider. Everyone is an outsider. Do you, do you know that? Give me some feedback. Do you know that? Do you own that? I don't for the life of me know why we'd have to say anything else if you just said, yes, I know I'm an outsider. I own it. I have no idea why you wouldn't come screaming and kicking to the kingdom right now if you know it. In sin, all of us are outside of a relationship with our creator. In our sin, we're outside of, of community with God's people. In sin, we don't ever experience the great news of great joy that will be for all the people. You're the exclusion to that statement. 
because you've rejected this. Outsiders have no answers for the mess of this world and they have no answers for the consequence of their life decisions or actions. All you have as an outsider without Jesus is guilt, fear, and shame. It's all you have. You can try and fail and question yourself. You can do and do wrong and lay awake at night. That's your experience. And then, and then you give your investment, your affections and your heart to things that break it. That's absurd to me. That's called insanity. Like, I want this to fulfill me. Oh, it doesn't. Try it again. Invest more money. Breaks my heart again. All you have is the disillusionment of that scenario. And all of it is tremendously, tremendously sad. But this is even more sad to me. If everyone is an outsider, what's more sad is not everyone thinks they are. And this is where we get into this huge problem with our perspective or self-awareness, okay? So this is how it goes down. Here's why people don't think they're an outsider, because they use the tool called comparison. I, I, I will just simply look at you or a group of you or a system of you and decide whether my life merits more attention than, than your life. Like, you're an, you're an idiot, and I'm not. You're poor, and I'm rich, I've never done those things. I have done these things. And so by comparison, you, you think whatever spiritual thoughts you think in a horizontal context. Just compare yourself to whatever world you're around. And there's always some world you can measure up to, right? Just keep changing the channel. You'll find something more stupid than you, right? So we don't think we're the outsider. Why? Because of comparison. The other reason why we struggle to believe we're an outsider is because of self-righteousness. We make the conclusion, or someone taught us a long time ago, it's in the culture, it's in the water, that if all you do is work really hard, God will notice your good works. God will see your good efforts. He'll take count and credit for your good efforts, and he will give you what you do. He will give you salvation. You know, you've heard us say the good pile thing, the good pile theology, just whatever it is. It could be just marginally better than the mess that you've made. As long as it's better, God will give you credit for that. And so we walk around like, I can make it better without a savior. I'm not so broken, I'm not so leprous, I'm not so marginalized that I can't fix myself. So we conclude that self-righteousness is a way. The other way that keeps some of us outsiders and not thinking it is, is self-deceived. What God? What standard? What authority? I'm, I, I get to decide what's right. I get to decide what's moral for me. And everyone gets their own version. And so I can just walk around just blank in my head and assuming that I can be my own standard. And so I'm self-deceived like I've met the mark. And it isn't true. So if you're here today and you would look in the mirror and go, you know what, I don't think I'm an outsider. Well, I'm telling you, you're wrong. And maybe one of those reasons explains why. Okay, but the good news of great joy that the angels announced 2,000 years ago was about two specific exclusive truths. And that idea of exclusive means it removes every other possible option. Exclusive truths. Everyone has a need. Truth number one. Truth number two is Jesus is all that you need. Two exclusive truths. That's all they came to announce. You can't do it, shepherd. You can't do it, outsider. You can't do it, hated. You need Jesus, Savior, come to die. 
okay? Romans 3, all have sinned, all. Acts 4, salvation is in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved, period. Exclusive truth. That truth is exclusive. But let me just tell you kind of the next process of that exclusiveness. That exclusiveness of the good news requires an exclusive admission. It really does. You have to say it. You have to believe it. You can't just hang around the edges. You have to say, I am the one that needs the doctor. I am the sick who needs healing. I am the leper who can't belong. I am the shepherd who is a sinner. I'm that person. You have to say it. I need help. Can you, can you see, can you begin to see the picture that God's painting and just the announcement to these men? I hope, I hope you can. Shepherds who don't fit, who don't belong. Sinners who don't fit and don't belong. Jesus came for us. Amen. We got to finish with this. This exclusive admission we're talking about comes with an amazing great prize. Let me just read you a couple of reminders again. Back to uh, Luke chapter 2. Verses 10 and 11 and verse 14. This is the announcement of the angel to the outsider of what Jesus is coming to give them. He says, verse 10, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Verse 14, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. What, what a wonderful thing. Here's what the angel promised. Fear not. Freedom from fear. You want prize? There you go. Freedom from the unknown, because the world without knowing God, without knowing he's sovereign, without knowing he loves and cares, is left to sort out all the pieces and the things they don't conclude with, with fear. I don't know how it's gonna go. We are free from harm. Fear from the fear of free from harm. Fear uh, of abandonment or having to face God on your own without a covering. Can you imagine? Someday, every person in here will have to face him. You will either be pronounced clean by the work of Christ or you will be judged accurately. I, I don't know what would create an anxiousness in the human heart more than that. I don't want him looking at me. I don't want him looking in the corners of my life because what he will find will be terribly, terribly dark. So he says, fear not. Why could he tell outsiders fear not? Because Jesus covers us so much there is no more fear. Great joy. One writer I read this week said, and it's not a Christian writer, it's just a, a secular writer made this kind of assessment of America that feeling sad is the new normal in America. I wonder if that's true. Can I just give you a really, really simple definition of sadness? The absence of joy. Can I give you a definition of joy? The presence of Jesus. I know there's more sophisticated ways to talk about those things, but I just want you to think that simple. Anything without Jesus is sadness. With Jesus, there is no more. That's the reality. John Piper talked about joy this way. Christian joy is a good feeling. Now, we're not running away from emotions. He says it's a good emotion in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. Jesus is on display. Jesus what gives me joy. The angel says there's also peace. 
lasting peace, peace with God. We've talked about this over and over again, that in our sins, we're at enmity, we're at war with God. The war is over. In Christ, there's no more conflict. There's no more power struggle. He wins, amen? Peace with God. There's also the peace of God. This is, this is kind of the way we experience it, probably on a minute-by-minute minute basis, but there is a piece of a settled conscience. When, when Satan and our own sinful flesh wants to accuse us with our actions, it's Jesus that says a better word, doesn't he? Yeah, I know that's what he did, but I am his. This is my righteousness over him. It's the peace of a restful mind. It's the peace of a surrendered life and a hopeful heart and a loving relationship. That's the peace the peace of God. But the ultimate prize, and we can't, we can't skip it, it was in verse 11. Unto you is born this day in the city of David, what? Who is? Christ the Lord, Jesus, is the prize. He's the ultimate prize of heaven for every sinner to be known and loved fully by God himself. His intentional touch for outsiders and marginalized who've created their own distance with God because of their sin. Jesus is the prize. David knew that. Psalm 16, he said, in your presence there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Church, do you believe that? This Christmas, you know it's about Jesus. You know it's about Jesus, but I'm gonna give you a weird way to celebrate, okay? At least today. Celebrate who you are. An outsider rescued and brought close. Amen? Let's pray together. God, thank you for a reminder again of something very old but profoundly true that we have no help on our own apart from you, that we are separated in our sin, that we all deserve something far worse but Jesus made a way. He's made us your children. So we're just thankful for this truth and for this Christmas and what it reminds us of. We pray it in Christ's name, amen.